Hello, and welcome back to the Sinobabble podcast. In this episode, we will be continuing the theme of mass campaigns and taking a detailed look at some of the most important campaigns in PRC history in order to see the party's revolutionary tactics in action. In the last episode, we spoke about the structure of mass campaigns in Maoist China, and this week we're going to be looking at three campaigns in detail, one rural and two urban. The rural campaign was known as agrarian land reform policy, that's land reform to you and me, which was the radical redistribution of all of China's agricultural land equitably among its peasant population. The two urban campaigns are somewhat interlinked. They're known as the Three Antis and Five Antis campaigns, and they sought to tackle corruption and waste in China's state bureaucracy and private sectors. These are probably the three most important mass campaigns that took place in the early PRC. They were all launched between 1950 and 1953, officially speaking, and they were all aimed at solidifying the new regime and its goals. There were other campaigns that took place during this period, such as the Suppress the Counter-Revolutionaries campaign or the Resist America Aid Korea campaign, but we'll go over those in other episodes where they are more embedded in the context of specific political and economic events, such as the Korean War. The three campaigns that we're talking about today deserve their own episode because they were so crucial to the early formation of the PRC and equally determined the economic path that the country would take, the shape of its politics, and the nature of party-society relations essentially until the present day. So we're going to go over the aims of each campaign first, then discuss what actually happened, then finally we'll go over the results and impact of the campaigns, covering both the immediate aftermath and some of the long-term effects that can still be seen till this day. So let's begin with what each of these campaigns was actually trying to achieve. All of them had what I like to think of as a surface-level aim, as well as a hidden or clandestine aim. I don't want to say that the purpose that the party stated was superficial, or trying to hide their real intentions, because, in all honesty, they really were trying to improve the distribution of land in the countryside, and they were trying to prevent corruption, abuses of power, and tax evasion in the cities. However, while these goals were the ones that were stated on the tin, so to speak, They were more a means to an end rather than the end in and of themselves. For land reform, the public aim of the campaign was the redistribution of land holdings and the establishment of a family farming system across China, as opposed to the semi-feudal system that was already in place. The idea was that absentee landlordism, which had grown rampant under the nationalist republican government, would be wiped out and all peasant families would be brought up to a sort of middling level whereby they were able to feed themselves and also have a little surplus that they could sell for a profit. Now that sounds all well and good, but it was really only half the story. Going a bit deeper, the party wanted to completely break not only the power that the landlord classes had on rural life, but also the traditional structure of family life based on Confucian values, upon which the foundation of rural life had rested for at least a thousand years, if not more. This included things such as arranged marriages, ancestor worship, lending and borrowing practices, traditional land rental agreements, male-only inheritance, partible inheritance, which is the division of land equally among sons, traditional festivals and holidays, and other wasteful customs such as paying soothsayers or priests or making expensive sacrifices to ancestors and local gods. 
A couple of episodes ago, we discussed the marriage law, which was taking place at the same time as Ladrafor, and was also part of this system of breaking down traditional societal structures in the countryside. To the CCP, not only were these practices the sort of thing that kept the poor destitute and ignorant, they would also stop the CCP from being able to fully enforce their rule, as peasant loyalty would be to their traditions and their neighbours first, as they had a longer relationship with them. Another aim of the movement was also to set up the necessary conditions for collective farming, but we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Let's move on now to the cities and more urban areas, where the three anti and five anti campaigns took place. These campaigns were a little bit different from land reform in that they weren't really trying to undo a whole system, so to speak, but rather remove corrupt elements and practices from within those systems. The main aim of these campaigns was essentially to reduce waste and stimulate the economy in the wake of World War II and in the face of mounting costs of China's participation in the Korean War. Years of mismanagement of the economy by the nationalists had led to an inflationary spiral that the CCP had just managed to get under control, and now it was time to actually generate some money. The Three Antis movement was aimed at the three evils known as corruption, waste and bureaucratism within the government, and targeted officials at all levels who may have been participating. The Five Antis extended the search for bad elements to the business community, the main targets being merchants and industrialists engaged in bribery, tax evasion, fraud, theft of state assets and leakage of state economic secrets. Again, both of these campaigns had aims that ran deeper than what was seen on the surface. For the three antis, the CCP were really hoping to tighten up party loyalty and discipline, instill a sense of continued vigilance for those who might be going against the party line, and to practice mass campaign tactics to reassure the public that the party was on their side. There was probably also a good dose of rooting out any personal enemies thrown in there for good mix too. For the five antis, the party sought to take control of private businesses by exposing them as corrupt and unable to willingly cooperate with the state, and also to get workers on the side of the party and get full control of trade unions. The extension of the three antis into the five antis also helped divert attention away from the idea that the CCP may be inherently corrupt, as the stark amount of corruption unveiled may have suggested. Now, it may seem peculiar that a campaign to clean up corruption wasn't done swiftly and secretly, internally, by party forces, but was rather announced to the public and in fact actually demanded public participation. Why is it that the party did not feel that their regime would be threatened if they involved the public in the Three Antis campaign, especially when they were accusing many members of their own party of serious levels of embezzlement and corruption alongside other petty inefficiencies? Well, the short answer is that the party was relying on the effectiveness of the mass line theory, which we discussed a few episodes ago. To recap briefly, the mass line was essentially the idea that the party would consult the masses on any policy or major decision, and then interpret their response and use it to inform decisions moving forward. In general, it was basically a stand-in for the idea that the party knew what the public wanted and was permitted to act in their stead. In terms of the anti's campaigns, the party stood for the people's democracy and claimed to be trying to do away with the leftovers of the old regime and those who had been corrupted by it, even if they were members of the party themselves. 
This way, the public supported the campaign and therefore the party too, just as the party in turn stood up for the best interests of the people by exposing and ridding itself of corrupt elements. It was also a more effective way to get perpetrators to come forward voluntarily, instead of using the police to bang on doors and drag people out and force them to confess. The party could just wait for wrongdoers to come forward of their own accord after they'd caved under public pressure. This would be a very popular tactic in future mass campaigns too. Okay, so now we know what each of the campaigns was about, let's take a look at how they were carried out and the major events that took place during their duration. With land reform, the first thing that happened was the labelling of each family based on class status. This was a very, very crucial part of the campaign and became the foundation for class politics in China for at least the next 30 years. There were six classes in total. Landlord, rich peasant, upper middle peasant, middle peasant, lower middle peasant, and poor peasant. The classifications were essentially based on how much you owned in terms of land, animals, and tools, as well as how much labour you hired outside of your own household to work on that land. So, to give you an idea, a landlord would be someone who owned quite a bit of land, uh, more than the average peasant in the village. They wouldn't work the land themselves, and they would maybe have two or three animals, like oxen, for ploughing. A middle peasant family would have something like enough land to feed themselves, plus a little bit extra to sell on the side, and they may own one draught animal and hire some labour to work alongside their own family in the field. A poor peasant was usually someone who didn't own any land at all, and had to work for a landlord or a rich peasant, or occasionally a middle peasant family. The system wasn't quite the same as serfdom in medieval Europe, and in fact there wasn't really any widespread serfdom in China, although there was a little bit of slavery practice in some southwestern areas. Here's a fun challenge. Try and figure out whether you would have fallen into the landlord, upper middle, lower middle, or whatever peasant class. If we look at the reality of China's situation at the time, the majority of landlords were actually not that much richer than their poor counterparts, and even if they were, it didn't usually last for very long, as land, as I mentioned, would be divided among their sons upon their father's death, and richer families tended to have more children. This usually meant that a family's fortunes could increase and then decrease in the space of just a few decades, just based on inheritance, as well as other factors such as how much side hustling the family did on the side, like producing silk with silkworms, or whether or not they had borrowed money, how good the weather was. There were lots of factors, and the relationship between poor peasants and rich peasants often wasn't completely exploitative either, although that's not to say that they were no mean or absentee landlords who were just leeching off the land. But again, if we look at the majority of cases, people who were considered landlords could just be like an older widow, for example, who had no sons of her own, and therefore no means to work her own land apart from hiring help. But this sort of nuance was lost during the land reform campaign when the CCP descended on the countryside. Many richer families tried to conceal their wealth by eating animals, quickly selling land, withholding money or food that they would usually donate that would have marked them off as rich people, or withholding fertiliser from land that they knew would be confiscated. The campaign usually also provided an opportunity for some people to settle old scores, inflating the crimes of local enemies so that they could get their stuff, or perhaps get out of paying back some money, 
or even get their own back just for mistreatment in the past. After landlords were pointed out, they were publicly denounced in trials where their own neighbours would berate them publicly for their crimes, beat them, and sometimes even kill them. It was a fairly violent affair overall, although the persecutions did not always go the way the CCP expected. A landlord enemy was expected to be found in every village, but in some villages there wasn't really anyone rich enough to be considered truly a landlord, or in some cases the so-called landlord was so well-liked, or even just related to everyone in the village, so that villagers were reluctant to punish those who were nominated. Class boundaries in many villages were blurred so that those who might be considered rich or middle peasants feared being bumped up to an enemy or black class just to meet quotas. In other cases, poorer peasants were afraid of retaliation, especially in those areas that had been liberated by the CCP during the Second World War, only to be abandoned and taken over by the old landlords again. In their defence, there was no guarantee that the very young communist regime would be around to help them forever. Propaganda and the organisation of teams made up of trained cadres, local Communist Party members, and members of the poor and lower middle peasants groups helped to overcome these fears and bring more people on side. As the old systems unravelled and the party was able to show that the landlords really were powerless to retaliate, more people joined in the campaign, and it took on a truly mass nature. Following the class labelling and denunciation sessions, land was forcibly removed from landlords and redistributed among the villagers so that every family was entitled to their own plot of land. Interestingly, while the CCP wanted to completely tear down landlord classes, one of the main aims was actually to keep the rich peasant economy going. The party had to acknowledge that a radical redistribution of land would lead to the development of farms that were basically too small to be profitable as production was just too low, and they were essentially reliant on the skills and economy of the rich peasants to turn any sort of profit. After the land reform, the amount of land held by rich peasant was at least twice as much as that held by poor peasants. The share of land of the top 10% of landowners fell from 24.4% in 1930s to 21.6% in 1952, so not really that dramatic a share. On average, it was actually the middle peasants who lucked out the most, having already been on decent footing before the campaign began, and in many cases receiving even more land and resources in the process. In the cities, the charges levelled at supposed criminals during the Three Antis campaign were often as spurious as those meted out to landlords during land reform. Pretty much any type of mishandling of finances, neglect of public property, over-the-top expenditures like buying foreign cars or luxury furniture, or any type of spending that was not directly related to production was considered a punishable offence. The public were rallied to help the party root out suspects within the government and party, who were then paraded in public trials and sentenced to punishments ranging from fines and imprisonment to execution. The Three Anti campaign was the largest and most intense purge undertaken by the CCP at the time, outstripping similar purges that we had discussed that took place during the Yan'an period. Long-standing party members were not safe, and neither were prominent statesmen including mayors, provincial leaders, department heads and executives. Funnily enough though, high-ranking members like generals or members of the central party leadership seemed to have evaded any sort of punishment. 
I guess they were already pure enough. The Five Antis campaign was promoted as an attack on the growing elements of bourgeoisie subordination. This is CCP rhetoric for, we're tolerating private businesses for now, but we're not happy about it, so you guys better watch your step. Like the Three Antis campaign, the number of things considered an evil and worthy of punishment were broad-ranging, and often stacked up. So, for example, you could be accused of fraud for making what the party considered to be too much profit. If you made too much profit, that meant that you were probably evading taxes, and then your taxes would then be calculated based on the unlawful wealth that you had apparently accumulated. Public sentiment was riled up even more than in the Three Antis campaign, as fraudulent merchants who sold defective or poor quality goods were painted as anti-patriotic. The usual rounds of voluntary confessions, public trials, and mass meetings to berate, denounce, and beat perpetrators all ensued. Many were convinced to confess under sheer weight of peer pressure, despite having done nothing wrong except for basically being good at making money. An interesting quirk of the Five Antis campaign was the use of women by the party to coerce confessions out of their husbands and fathers. In Beijing, for example, 1,000 young women were formed into work teams by the Women's Federation and sent into homes to mobilise merchants' wives to convince their husbands to confess. Apparently, the tactic even worked too, although I'm not really that surprised given my first-hand experience with women and gossip. So, what were the final results of these campaigns, and were they considered a success? Well, land reform was a huge success for the CCP politically, but its agricultural and economic results are a bit more dubious and difficult to quantify. Around 43% of China's arable land was redistributed to roughly 60% of rural inhabitants, and the party had also succeeded in embedding the idea of class consciousness in the countryside, undoing the traditional Confucian values that had underpinned peasant way of life in the past. New systems had been set up to replace the old. Village associations were now the official organising power, replacing the likes of clan associations, kinship groups, or temple societies. But did land reform actually lead to an increased agricultural output, or an increase in the standard of living for peasants? Not so much. Yes, poor peasants who had never owned land now had a plot to call their own, and they were no longer under the yoke of oppressive forces that kept them living at subsistence level. Small-scale peasant farming seems to have led to a year-on-year agricultural growth of around 3.6% from 1952 to 1955, which is far from monumental, and is at least a little bit inaccurate due to the unreliability of data from this period. So, in short, land reform may have been a good thing morally, but it was not necessarily growth-promoting. After the Three Antis campaign, the government had to recruit new cadres and party members en masse to replace the bad elements that had been purged. Tens of thousands of new appointments were made, and new recruits were put through a sort of short-term training class where they had to get up to speed with their new roles in government, factories, towns and villages. They were also obliged to take part in education programmes, which essentially entailed indoctrination in communist philosophy, learning about the benefits of party life, and accepting the overall leadership of the party in all affairs. In some areas, cadres had to spend up to eight hours a week in such classes. 
In the Five Antis campaign, officially, around half a million merchants were found guilty of some sort of crime, though this number, again, is probably extremely conservative. Though there was a bit of violence, many capitalists were able to make up for their crimes on merit by paying back taxes, promising to cooperate with the state, and making generous donations to public funds. In some cases, merchants were obliged to take out loans from the government to pay back what they owed to the government, which created a sort of feedback loop that left their businesses indebted to the state. This was good news for the communists, however, as they were able to meet the expenses needed to pay off their spending on the Korean War, and were also apparently able to bring down prices and inflation, as the bourgeoisie were essentially forced to hand over all their private assets and personal valuables in order to pay back what they owed. In the end, the CCP was basically completely successful in its goals, and had managed to set up the perfect conditions for carrying out the transformation of China into a socialist state over the next few decades. So, what were the immediate and longer-term effects of these campaigns on Chinese society and the Chinese economy? Well, with land reform, the power of the landlord class had been completely broken. Unlike during the Civil War period in the 1930s and 40s, where the CCP had not yet gained full control and liberated areas were often retaken by landlords and their militia, or the Nationalist Army, the landlords now had no recourse to power. They were always in the minority, but now they didn't even have anyone to pay off to fight on their behalf. They were also probably extremely afraid to do so. Around one in six landlord families had a member who was killed during the land reform campaign, leading to an estimated one to two million deaths as a result. I said earlier that land reform was just a means to an end, and as we'll see in a future episode, probably on the Great Leap Forward, the party, and especially Mao, were actually aiming for the formation of cooperatives and then communes, rather than small-scale family farming. But... Rather ironically, after Mao's death, it was determined that the communes just weren't working out, for fairly obvious reasons, and the introduction of a land-to-the-tiller policy and a return to family farming and side hustles essentially marked a return to the fairly successful results of the initial land reform. It may have only lasted a moment in the 1950s, but the system set up during land reform is quite similar to the system of agriculture practiced in China today, just without the purges. Thanks to the three and five antis campaigns, purges were established as a norm among the bureaucratic and bourgeois classes, which included everyone from teachers and industrialists to artists and administrators. Self-criticism, criticism of others, and denouncement of one's colleagues, as well as the devotion of one's labour to the promotion of mass campaigns, were a major defining feature of the Maoist period. One of the papers that I read on the three and five antis movements had a very interesting conclusion that I thought would be worth sharing. It's a paper that was written in 1953, just one year after the campaigns took place, and it has a sort of prosaic quality to it. I'll read it for you now. Quote, Before coming to power, the communists made many promises, most of which remain unfulfilled. As long as the people are beset by fears fear of American aggression, of American germ warfare, of espionage, of purge, and are occupied with the activities demanded by successive mass movements, they will have scant time or energy for pondering the wide gap between their earlier hopes and present realities. As time goes on, however, 
they may become less responsive to the campaigns and may sit back and reflect. It will then be more difficult for the communists to mobilise the masses or prevent them from expressing their disillusionment. End quote. It's quite interesting to reflect on this statement now, almost 70 years later. Putting aside their prediction of the current Sino-American relations, on the one hand, they are right. You don't really see any mass campaigns in China anymore, and I can't really think of any prominent ones since the end of the Cultural Revolution and the death of Mao. However, the reflective nature of what the party would consider the Chinese masses, I would argue, hasn't really changed that much, or rather not in the way the authors possibly believed it would. As the recent coronavirus situation has demonstrated, the party is still as infallible as ever. If anything, the Chinese people are more reliant on the government than ever, and the party's grip over the nation and its people is stronger than ever. Disillusionment where it occurs is processed through the proper channels, remaining a low-level threat to the party's overall legitimacy, and silenced wherever it may be considered a serious threat, dismissed as a sort of disturbance of national security. I'm sure you're all familiar with the recent cases of Hong Kong's national security law, or with Dr. Li Wenliang, the famous, or infamous, Wuhan whistleblower, so I won't bore you with the details. Needless to say, at this moment in time, the CCP is only becoming more secure in its position, and taking opportunities to expand power beyond its natural borders. As for the Chinese people, despite the fact that many of the party's revolutionary goals do still, to this day, remain unfulfilled, they remain nationalistic, proud of their nation and their heritage, which, at this stage, is synonymous with loyalty to the CCP. And that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I would kindly ask all of you to rate this podcast on whatever player that you're listening to it on. And if you think that somebody else you know would like this podcast, please do recommend it to a friend. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you join us for the next episode. 